Welcome back to In the Shadows, an immigration policy podcast where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. To begin, we just want to say thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in weekly. We really appreciate it. And for our last episode, we have a lot of questions that our listeners sent in about our different episodes. So we're going to, you know, go through them and answer them. Great. What's the first question? The first question is, if you have a friend who you suspect is experiencing intimate partner violence, what do you do? What about if you have a male friend? How would you approach that? That's a great question. Um, I think... In the first episode, Danny really talked about a lot of the resources that Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence has, Um, but there's also a national domestic violence helpline um, that you can have these people call. But I think at the like when you notice these behaviors happening, I think sometimes, um, as Dave talked about, sometimes the people who are victims of domestic violence don't even realize that they're victims of domestic violence. And so I think as much as you can be a friend who calls out that kind of behavior or says like, hey, I noticed this thing and that might not be right um, is really important. Yeah, I agree. I think it's important to just check in with them constantly ask you know other friends that you guys share mutually if they've noticed anything changing um, and kind of come up with a game plan because if you attack it head on super fast and say hey here are these resources or hey you should do this or hey did you know that you're (laughs) experiencing domestic violence it's going to be one shocking and two very off-putting so there's not really a perfect answer and I think it obviously depends on the person that you're talking to and who's experiencing this and you know how they tend to take criticism um, or even just advice so I would suggest just to take it a step at a time and not jump to conclusions or think that you have to immediately have an action plan because that might actually be um, detrimental to the person. Yeah I also think another really important thing to remember is that a lot of times the coercive control in intimate partner violence um, includes like isolating those people from their friends. So like you may say something and the friend might get mad and then start pushing you away. And I think as much as you can be persistent and like if you like suspect that intimate partner violence is happening um, instead of just you know, letting the friendship fall off or saying like, oh, well, this person pushed me away. I'm not going to be a part of their life anymore. Um, just kind of being there no matter how much they try to push you away. I think that's really important. Yeah. Don't make it about you because yeah. <laughs> it's not. Um, but just be a good friend and maybe drop subtle hints, you know, um, and just start kind of, I don't want to say infiltrating their mind, but just like, <laughs> no, <laughs> that sounds like coercive control from a friend. Right. But like, just like subtle hints here and there. Um, and then maybe just, I don't know. It's tough. It really is. I, yeah, I think it's important, like you said, to remember that it's not about you. Mm-hmm. It's about them. And so they're your friend. You're going to, know you know what your relationship is like and so I think just thinking about your friend and the way that you interact the best way that 
you know, to discuss issues with them um, and just letting them know that you're there as a support, I think is really important. And especially like with men, um, if you suspect that like a male friend is the victim of intimate partner violence, I think it's important um, for female friends to say something like, hey, I noticed the way that, you know, this person is treating you and that's, like, not okay. Um, and as much as, like, if... And try to relate to them. And even if you can't, just try to make it where you're not telling them that, you know, they're allowing this bad thing to happen to them. Like, don't make it even worse for them by saying you're doing this and have you noticed that this is happening why haven't you realized this yourself just be like hey this is something that I've noticed I could be wrong but have you like recognized this at all or yeah or how are you feeling about it yeah just I think listening is really important yes listen to listen don't listen to respond because that's even worse (laughs) Okay, so our next question is, I was also curious about the statistics and outcomes of those who go into court unrepresented. You guys talked about how these individuals are at a disadvantage, but I was wondering if you guys would be able to talk more about this because I think it's a big problem. I just think about how many people may not be able to meet the financial need cutoff for an organization to help them, but can't really afford an attorney. Or maybe people just don't know how best to proceed. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue, and we do talk about it a lot in law school, um, how money is really a barrier to a lot of people getting help from the legal system, especially in a civil context. I think, Maria, you have some statistics, right? Yeah, so according to a 2020 report by the National Center for State Courts, in state civil cases, about 76% Um, of the litigants are self-represented, whereas in criminal cases, while the number is lower, it's still significant. We have about 14% of defendants in state felony cases who are appearing without a lawyer. And again, these numbers aren't um, the most accurate because the criminal one, it's just state felony cases. Um, But still, that's a lot of people. And especially, it makes sense that the civil litigants have a higher rate of less representation because there you're not guaranteed counsel, right? It's not like you're a defendant and you have the right to counsel. Um, In a civil litigation, you don't have that. And so it makes sense that it's 76% who end up um, self-represented, especially because like the the person who asked the question said, there's a financial cutoff for some organizations. Um, One that we looked at was the CLS, which is the community legal services. Yeah. And on their website, they said that um, to qualify for their help, your income cannot be more than 125% of the federal poverty line. And so that's tough to meet. And so if you don't meet that, what do you do? Yeah. Um, It's really hard, especially because when we're thinking about cases in a civil context, um, that's where a lot of law that impacts domestic violence survivors lives. So protection orders or going through like a divorce, um, child custody, those types of things are all in civil court. And um, that's what's really cool about in Pennsylvania is there's the Pennsylvania Safe Law Helpline that 
provides legal information to people who maybe have to represent themselves in a civil case. Um, they talk about where to file, like where to file the paperwork, or what, um, like what generally the options are, what the law says about their situation generally, and it's really helpful. A lot of the calls when I was working the line, a lot of the calls that I took were people who tried to get legal aid but made too much money so they couldn't be represented, but they also couldn't afford an attorney. And so they were just kind of there to represent themselves. And so I think that's why pro bono work with attorneys is so important. Because um, without it, I mean, yeah, it'd be awful. Um, There are also other services where it's not just income based. It's, They'll give you legal services at a discount, um, which I also think is very cool. It's just tough, right? Because pro bono is amazing, but then also generally, how do you ask a lawyer who went to law school is probably in debt themselves? How do you ask them to just represent you at a discounted rate when they've worked so hard, spent so much money in debt, right? This is their livelihood. Um, How do you expect them as a career just generally to just give legal services that are cheaper all the time and so it's like you've got to strike that balance because everyone deserves counsel but then also everyone needs a livelihood so it's tough right and there are costs related to representation um right that aren't just like the lawyer's fee it's like some yeah it's crazy but I know like if I went into private practice, I would be a total bleeding heart and I would never survive because <laughs> I would be like, you can't pay. That's fine. I'll take the case for free. <laughs> yeah, I feel you there. It's tough. It really is. Um, so our next question is in the episode with Dr. David DiMatteo, he talked about problem solving courts. What are problem solving courts? This question is really um, interesting because I think problem-solving courts are amazing. I think they are... So, okay, so what they are, are they specialized courts designed to address specific issues um, and underlying criminal behavior in a more collaborative and holistic way than traditional courts do? So some examples of that are drug courts, mental health courts, domestic violence courts, um, veteran veteran treatment courts, um, and they basically have a system where it's a team approach. So it includes the prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, treatment providers, and other professionals, and they all work together in order to identify the underlying issues. Um, And the success rates of these courts, while I don't have the statistics, I know that the specialized courts have been shown to be effective in reducing recidivism. Um, So I think they're very effective, and I'm glad they've become um, a very prevalent thing. Yeah, I think they're really great because instead of just addressing the crime that somebody committed, these courts try to understand why somebody might um, right. commit a crime and address that issue. Because a lot of times, you know, like a shoplifting crime or um, drug crimes are tied specifically to like poverty or mental health or something like that. And so... Um, sending those people to prison doesn't yeah it doesn't really like solve the problem at all so the problem solving court really focuses on like what's happening with you (laughs) and how can we provide support to you um so that you don't 
have to commit a crime again. Yeah, and it is important because we're not jamming people up in the court system that's already plenty jammed up. Um, We're having these judges, these prosecutors, these defense attorneys, these helpers really show that they care about the individual and they take it on a case-by-case basis. And of course, there are certain standards that you need to meet, criteria that you need to have um, in order to qualify for these courts. But if you do, they really work with you and make sure they understand, you know, why you did what you did, help you. Um, Again, it's the underlying issue. And I think that makes the defendant feel like a human and not just as another number going through the court system where they're just trying to get, you know, a certain win rate to, you know, for their cases or whatever. So, yeah. And you can definitely understand why Dr. DiMatteo has a specific interest in that because (laughs) his focus is psychology and like why people do the things they do. So. I think uh, seeing an expansion of that would be really interesting um, and beneficial, but it takes a lot of work and it takes a shift in focus from like the lock up all the criminals <laughs> approach that we seem to have. So hopefully moving forward, um, we'll, our courts will start to reflect the way I think a lot of society feels about the prison system in general. Yeah, I remember one example. So over the summer, I was able to sit in on mental health court as part of my co-op. Um, and <laughs> though this one woman came up, she went through her whole weekly goals, um, what she did that week, um, how she's doing, her journal, all of that. And at the end of it, the judge and everyone clapped in the courtroom for her to like to applaud her efforts that week. And I was so taken aback because in court typically I'm like if I cough I feel like I'm gonna disturb the entire piece of the court but everyone clapped for her and she had this big smile on her face and it was just really wholesome and I feel like it was making a big impact on her life like she was excited she said thank you I'm excited to come back next week and tell you what I do next so it really does have a positive impact and I think if we keep pushing towards a more problem-solving mindset then we can really make some steps forward I agree So our next question is about our episode with Judge Morley. She said, I particularly enjoyed the episode with Judge Morley. I like that your podcast highlights the problem presented by a gender essentialist approach to our laws meant to protect vulnerable people. How do you think our asylum law could better reflect gender-based violence and gender-based inequality around the world while avoiding essentialism? Judge Morley mentioned a great example of how men from South America are more often fleeing impressment into gangs while women are more often fleeing domestic violence. Can our laws effectively target protections to these groups of persecuted people without reinforcing gender essentialism? Yeah, I think that's a really complex question. Um, And I don't know if asylum law, the way it is in the United States, can really do more than it's doing. I think the particular social group category of asylum law um, is the most like broad way for people to kind of get asylum in the United States. Um, But I don't think if we're thinking about the other categories um, that would qualify for somebody for asylum that 
really we can do much more than we already have happening. Yeah, I think the social group aspect is really key because the social groups are just saying that you are a part of this social group that is a pervasive issue especially in that country that you're coming from and so it's not that we're targeting and I think this is a good way to answer the question because it's not that we're targeting the gender specifically because of the gender it's because of the social group and where you fit in and why you should be able to seek asylum in this country so I think making sure that we focus on the social groups and not stereotype it with gender particularly is a way that we can try to avoid that but it's really tough because they're almost one in the same Um, yeah well I think another thing that's really great about asylum law is when you're thinking about the evidence that's being submitted in an asylum case and I think Judge Morley talked about this as well is that a lot of it has to do with country conditions so we know that in South America there's a lot of what they would call machismo which is just like it's a pretty masculine society um, and there's very defined gender roles um, and that information is allowed to be submitted with the petition for asylum so that the judge kind of gets a better picture of what's happening in that country and how maybe women might be more vulnerable to domestic violence um, in a South American country than they maybe in the United States. Um, and I so, so I think that's really helpful. And um, as much training as we can give to new lawyers going into like immigration law about the importance of country conditions um, can maybe help solve this issue. But it's just, I think these gender stereotypes are pervasive in the United States. They're pervasive internationally, but I don't know how much um, United States asylum law can impact sort of like a international view on domestic violence and gender roles, and I honestly don't know how much it should Yeah, reasonably. That's a tough question. Yeah. Something to think about. Definitely. So our next question is, if a certification of a U visa can be such a problem, why isn't there more government oversight of the state agencies? I think that's a great question. Um, I think one thing to think about is just resources um, in funding. If you think about just in Pennsylvania alone, every single county has a police agency. They have a district attorney's office, they have judges, and that's so many people to train to actually certify a U visa or train on all of the, you know, specific procedures, and that's so many people to oversee. And what we're really talking about is 10,000 people a year that are getting U visas, so it's kind of a hard sell to say that we need to dump more money into training these people um, when it affects such a small um, segment of the population and the population that it is affecting aren't United States citizens. So I think there's a lot of people who are really reluctant to put more money into training, um, even though I think focusing on training of these um, certifying agencies is really what's going to make the difference here. Um, 
helping them understand that their role isn't to give somebody legal status. It's just to say this person helped us in an investigation and they were a victim of a violent crime. So if they're applying for a U visa, like, yes, they helped us. That's it. Certify that that's all they have to do. Um, but I think it's, it's also just like a power thing. If people have, like you see what's happening in Chicago, if you have a certain view towards immigrants generally, I think it really um, impacts the way that people are certifying uh, these U visas. And so I think, I don't know, it's a resource thing. A lot of times it doesn't get addressed until it's a very serious problem like it is in Chicago. But even in Chicago, it's not being addressed by, you know, USCIS. It's being addressed by state and local officials. So I think the more education we have on a state and local level, um, the easier it's going to be. But until we expand U visas to a wider population of people, I don't think that people are I don't think that like it's easy to justify resources being spent that way unfortunately Yes, I think that was a really good answer, and I agree with you entirely. And that actually brings us to our next question, where someone said, I found the discussion around U and T visas to be super interesting. I didn't know there were different types. Just to be clear, can you apply for both U and T visas at the same time? The simple answer is yes, you can. Um, as Caleb spoke about in episode four, you can apply for both if you get one that's accepted then the other application just remains as it is and it doesn't get touched um, you can rescind it I believe but it's not necessary to but let's say you apply for a UNT visa you don't qualify or you're not certified for some reason under the U visa you can still have that T visa as a way to get legal status yeah that's like one of the only positive things <laughs> right <laughs> So our next question is, how do we know how many people are victims of domestic violence, especially men? We have these statistics, but are they really accurate? Yeah, the answer to that is we don't know. And no, they're not accurate. I think a lot of the studies that are being used right now, but even like the national agency are somewhere like 10 years old or more. Um, and you know, you can't force people to report domestic violence. So we can assume, and when you talk about these studies or you read them, they say, like, you can assume that there's underreporting. So what we see is that of people reporting, men and women are experiencing domestic violence at almost the same rate. But we know that not everybody reports. So... We can just assume that it's way more pervasive than we even realize, which is super scary. Yeah. And because we can't obviously have everyone 
or because there are so many underreporters, there's no way to quantify how many were missing. Um, and so it's really just an unknown. And I don't think there's ever going to be a point where we're ever going to know definitively. Yeah, unless somebody comes up with a new way to conduct a study where they can almost guarantee the reporting. But I don't know how that would happen. And if it did, that person would probably win a Nobel Prize, honestly. Seriously. So the last question we have is when talking about renaming VAWA, which is the Violence Against Women Act, I considered Protection from Intimate Partner Violence Act as a gender-neutral alternative, but that isn't exactly as catchy as VAWA. I think it's a good start, um, but it's also important to note that it's not just violence from intimate partners that this act protects. It's just violence generally. Yeah, it encompasses all sorts of violent crimes. And I think the reason it's called the Violence Against Women Act is because, you know, it's hard to say, like, it's hard to vote no on something that's called Violence Against Women Act. Um, But it doesn't just include women either. So I think that's really difficult to try it. I'm still thinking about it. I don't know what I would rename it, but I think it's really difficult to think about something that encompasses everything that this bill is because there's so much in it, as um, Veronica Finkelstein told us in episode five. Yeah, I think I still stand by the um, title that I thought of, which is Violence Against Victims Act. (laughs) It's very simple. It keeps the catchy va-va. But again, it's a work in progress, and obviously we're not changing the name of the act anytime soon, but I do think that it presents an issue, um, and I do think that going towards a gender-neutral alternative is the way to go. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, that wraps up our questions. Again, we wanted to thank you all for listening in. Um, We really appreciate it. We've had a great time speaking with all of our guests. We've had a great time learning about domestic violence, violent crimes as it pertains to immigration law, and the learning doesn't stop here. So we plan on taking this into, I don't know, just the future and hopefully enacting some policy changes. Yeah, I think the, I mean, we talk about a lot of heavy stuff in all of the um, episodes, but I think what's really important is that there is a way forward Um, and if it's something that you really care about whether you're an attorney or not um, there's ways that you can get involved in advocacy and help us change the way that we think about not only domestic violence but how we think about and talk about immigrants in the united states Um, and every voice matters and every voice counts for sure so thank you so much for listening